two days of trial down, one to go. This week, Griff, a special guest, and myself do a brief Trial of the Beast State of the Union, premiere the brand new segment, My Favorite Monster, and answer some new listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. And we're back. Yes, we are. Number 13, baby. Yes. Another beautiful day. I got a question for you, Griffin. It, could there be a possibly better day to spend all day poolside enjoying relaxing cocktails under the sun? Oh, it just looks marvelous outside. And uh, we're going to be doing podcast stuff all day long. Yep. Yep. That's the gist of it. Um, we're all looking pretty pasty at this point. It's uh, well, this podcast has become kind of. A reason why we stay indoors on the weekends. Yeah. I just kind of am staring longingly out the window. Oh, well. Oh, well. But we're back. We are on the advent of leaving for Gen Con. This episode's going to drop just after Gen Con wraps up. So hopefully everybody survives. Got a yeah, lot we'll to look see. forward to. We'll see. I mean, if you notice replacement players, that's probably why. <laughs> Do you have any predictions on what happened at Gen Con? Ooh, um, I feel like I'm going to know about as much about what happened on Gen Con after Gen Con as I do right now. So no idea. I think the, uh, the meetup's probably going to be pretty fucking lit. If PaizoCon and Origins were any indication, yeah, it's going to be pretty fucking lit. We got a lot of people coming out. We're going to be passing out koozies. We're going to be passing out stickers. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, I'm playing some 2E. I'm excited to get at the table and play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm playing... Keepers of the Grave or whatever it's called. Oh, you're actually doing a society yeah, scenario? Yeah, I'm doing oh, a society nice. scenario, so I'll be building up a character this week. It's going to be pretty legit. I haven't decided what I want to play yet. Ooh, any leanings yet? I'm personally leaning towards... I kind of want to do a high charisma rogue that takes the sorcerer dedication and goes kind of like the arcane trickster route. So I'm thinking about that. I'm also thinking about uh, potentially building a war priesty character with the fighter and cleric dedication, or just going straight paladin, because I haven't played paladin in a little while. Hmm. A lot of options, man. This could be your your society character for a long time, though, so be careful. Yeah, I think gnomes sound really cool to me. I have the core rulebook now, Uh and I was reading the gnome ancestry which is what they're calling them now sure and the ancestry feats for the gnome are super cool a lot of magic oriented stuff but they there's one where it's really cool for a rogue i think i would go gnome rogue if i was going doing trying to do that arcane trickster and they get this like color changing skin and so they get like it changes based off their emotions and their the environment they're in and it gives them bonus to stealth and it sounds really flavorful. So <laughs> I think it would be pretty cool. I'm imagining a situation when you're stealthing and then like get upset or scared or something and you turn not camouflaged anymore. Entire skin blushes. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody in studio is making me blush. He always does. Welcome back to the show. Aww. Tim. 
Thanks, Steve. Tim's here. Hell yeah. I'm glad to be back. I, I'm i surprised, honestly, because I saw the Nielsen ratings of my first episode. Yeah, it was... And um, not a good moment. I think the lowest the show's ever seen, so... Well, this is um, this episode is redemption 13. Arc. Redemption yeah, redemption. Arc. Redemption arc. We need to win back the favor of the fans, you know, get you back in good graces. Oh, man. I've fallen so far. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just because you've started showing up less to the live studio audience. You've actually been replaced in episode 50. I heard. And, oh, man, I mean, it's hard to say that I'm upset about that. Chris was amazing on that uh Selling beers in the audience was and, hilarious. And uncredited, too. Uncredited. Oh. People were like, I love Tim in the studio audience. And I was like, shit. That wasn't we never Tim this time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, well. we love you, buddy. Yep. Credit where credit's due. Yep. Well, if there's anything I know about you, you're a lot better. Loosened up a little bit. So we're gonna we're, we're all drinking the same thing, at least to start off. Um, this is from Surly Brewing Company. It's a darkness, big old beer bottle, Russian Imperial Stout. Um, it's got some super metal Cerberus artwork. There's some splash text on the back. Legendary Hound of Hades Cerberus. I'm not going to read that because that's not what this show is about. But it's exciting. Until later. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> drinking it. All right. What let's put them up. It? Let's find out. Cheers. 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 Clink, clink. Oh, yeah. That's, um. well, I'd say that's relatively par for the course for uh, Russian Imperial. Yeah, that'll Boozy. do you. Boozy for sure. Not overly boozy, which I'm happy about. I think this is a 12 percenter. Yeah. So not the highest ABV Russian Imperial I've drank. Yeah, I, I have trouble with the beer that gets above 10 percent. It just starts tasting too boozy. Yeah. When you drink like uh, in the 14 point something to 15 percent Russian Imperials, they get that weird. It's boozy, but it's almost like a cloying. Yeah. Ness to it. Yeah, like well. a like a fusel sort of like, I don't know. I know what you mean. It's, yeah, it's not necessarily the best flavor, in my opinion, but I like my stouts creamy and uh, with notes of coffee or chocolate or whatever. Yeah, this one hits the spot for me. I, I love how it warms you all the way down. Like I could drink this in the dead of winter and be perfectly content. Except yeah. that it's a nice summer day outside. <laughs> well, this is the last beer I want to drink next to the pool, but it's good for the air-conditioned house. <laughs> All right, I'm going to play some Sirenscape, and then we need to start talking. So, this is coming from the Never Ending Nigh soundscape. It's Dr. Latchkey's song. Um, this is the Strange Eons, or Aeons, um, songs from Sirenscape. So, just going to kick that off there. And Where's our Carrying Crown sound set, Sirenscape? I don't know. It's a popular AP. we got to re-release it. For 2E or something. That would be pretty cool. So everybody at home knows that we just released episode 50, Big Milestone, and 51. Um, a terrible episode uh, based off that and in combat. Terrible? Yeah, terrible. It was, it was great for me. I really enjoyed it. Terrible episode. Probably our worst to date. But we're not going to spend too much time talking about specifics on what happened in both those episodes because you've already heard them. We don't need to rehash it. But I did want to talk about something up top before we, you know, dive into the meat of this episode of Zone of Truth. So, I, I, I guess a lot of people turn to Carrion Crown as a good example of a trial in an AP. Um, I have never played 
a court case in Pathfinder, and I don't think either of you have either. Am I correct? Not really before this, no. Yeah, not really fleshed out like this one. This is sort of like, I've done occasionally a little story moment that involved a court. Sure. Um, I did one in Starfinder with a player who was a real lawyer, needless to say. Oh, really? I didn't do great on that, but I was, you know, it was in Castrovel. I was like, well, there's different laws here. You know, we can (laughs) make up whatever we want. (laughs) Sorry, lawyer. That's a fun space to play in, though. I mean, it sounds like that would be just one of those side tangents that you can take in a million different directions. Yeah, exactly. Was it a side tangent of an AP? Yeah, it was a side tangent of Dead Sons. Um, Basically, there was a lot of, in book two, you're exploring a jungle, and without too much spoiler, there is a protected part of Castravel, and so I wanted to bring in some story elements to have someone frame them as if they went there illegally and uh, introduce some characters from their past that had things against my characters. So it was really fun, but not nearly as fleshed out as the Carrion Crown one. And when I was looking it up, I do remember seeing people recommend this book of Carrion Crown for running a court case. So uh, great example, but I didn't want to read do. it. Yeah, I didn't want to read it because you guys are playing it and I didn't want to spoil myself. So yeah, and, and I don't think we want to, we're only two days in, right? You know, two of three. So two I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything for what may be upcoming or things we might've missed, but uh, Griffin has in our last zone of truth we talked a lot about embellishing your story and adding homebrew elements how close are we to the book on this one honestly 50-50 oh really yep um, wow a lot of this is obviously taken from Trial of the Beast mm-hmm. but characters are changed there's even evidence has changed so some of the things you guys have found isn't like doesn't exist uh, but you used it to great effect as evidence. So the trial is very interesting. Mm-hmm. The way it works out is that you end up having the PCs present evidence because they're not actually the defendant or actually the prosecutor here. They're essentially witnesses presenting their own stuff. So the charisma checks that you guys are making are directly impacting the success or failure of your mission to save the beast. Mm-hmm. They are made pretty much anytime you present a piece of evidence and evidence itself, based on how compelling it is, can provide you a bonus. So I think we've, I might've mentioned it when we're actually playing, like Lyra rolls a really low roll and I'm like, well, you're really lucky. This was the most compelling piece of evidence that you have you get a plus 20 on the roll. So that exists in Trial of the Beast. I've had to change it because of the different evidence that you guys are presenting uh, that that doesn't exist, and so it doesn't have a modifier added to it. But essentially, and and this won't be very spoilery because it'll make intuitive sense, there's there's a number in the book. There's a number of successful presented piece of evidence that you need to hit in order to sway the judges. So as you're presenting this, as, as Emily is presenting this stuff, she, I'm keeping track of what she succeeded. Yeah. And so I have a tally. And I I remember you telling me off mic again, this is not spoiler territory at all, but you said this was 
difficult, right? We had to we had to get a lot right. You do, a and lot of and your actions actually determine how much you have to get right. So we'll see what happens coming up. It might alter your eventual total at the end of day three, but it's pretty cool because it is it, it is presenting an unfair trial. Yeah. I think I'm doing a pretty decent job of embellishing on that that it's pretty much guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty in this case because this thing's a monster or he's perceived as a monster by the entire city so you get the angry townspeople in the trial you get the shithead prosecutor uh, who I think it's funny like he knows all of you. You all know uh-huh. him. He's purposely being a dick. Like oh, I'm I, I, aware. there's a couple times where he said, like, what was your name? Matumbe? Yep. Or like that kind of stuff. I was like, just gonna bring that up. I think I think it'd be interesting if you like if you would talk to him outside of the trial. Because again, he's like he's putting on a facade in order to win this. Yeah, he's really putting on a show, taking advantage of that all of you guys are relatively new to town and the trust of the townspeople is definitely something you need to win over first. Yeah, and he's a you know he's a graduate of Leopardstadt University, yeah. a son of Leopardstadt, basically. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult, and I think you know him presenting this stuff is definitely riling up the crowd, even if it's not like you never see me make a role for his stuff. That's because I'm trying to play it closer to the book, mm-hmm. even though. You know, he's providing a counter argument or a it's more so in a in an actual case, it would be more so if you presented evidence of guilt. Sure. And he was saying like he was on the defense and he was saying like, okay, well, you know, this is kind of circumstantial. Like you can't prove this, even though you have this piece of like you can't prove that a wraith drained these children, even if, you know, this priest thinks that that might be how they died you have no proof so like the bodies are too old that kind of stuff like he's bringing up these details in order to discredit you guys and that's going a long way towards riling up the town even if it isn't swaying the judges even if he's not making a role to sway the judges so i think the big takeaway here the way that the trial is set up you guys really need to keep in mind that it might be disheartening at times but and i think Ember said it in one of the past two episodes like you're making headway even if it feels like the crowd is getting more and more against you you're making headway with the judges they paid 10 silver for this bullshit (laughs) I want to see someone die someone's gonna burn I we're so we're barreling towards the wicker man I'm excited maybe uh, on that final day of trial we'll all get together as a little podcasty family and Watch The Wicker Man. Maybe review it for the show. I don't know. <laughs> oh, we should, yeah. I think we should. I've seen that movie like four times. It's, oh, uh, shit. Oh, oh, yeah. It's a Nick Cage classic. Really shines in the back third of the movie. Where, um... Yeah, I was, I was uh, editing our little crossover with Wheeler Woe, and the sheer quantity of Nick Cage references you made was astounding. It was like... 40 or 50. Like, if you made a drinking game off of your Nick Cage references, you would be blackout drunk. Oh, yeah. Well, what I, what happened was 
Everybody spent like an hour building characters. I built mine in about five minutes and spent the rest of the time researching, like reminding myself of all these Nick Cage things and writing them all down. Like my character sheet mechanically was like, like a quarter of a page, but then my character sheet in full with all of these like reminders to bring up the Wicker Man and writers to bring up Snake Eyes, like <laughs> was it was about, it was like three pages. Were you a Nick Cage themed character? Is that? He, oh, he played yes. Caster Troy. Oh, okay. Caster Troy. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm excited. I can't wait for that to come out. Yeah, that's edited, so that might be coming down the pipe soon. Yeah, we, uh, we'll we we'll let the fans know when that's coming. I think we're going to be uh, partnering with our friends at Wheeler Woe. It's going to be on their feed, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're a lot of fun. But, guys, we got another segment to do. Yeah. And I want and I want to give it its due amount of time because it's a new one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and it's something a little different. This segment's called My Favorite Monster. Q drop. It's my favorite monster. So here's how this is going to work. We're talking about a famous Pathfinder monster that also has basis like most pathfinder monsters in real life or real mythology we're going to talk about some of the fun things that make this monster unique Uh, we're going to talk stat blocks we're going to talk 1e and 2e and then we're just going to talk about some like the cool historical fun facts maybe where it was or you know the the story of this creature originated um just kind of bring in some real life stuff because i think that's really cool and uh griffin what monster are we going to kick off our slough of my favorite monsters with? I want to preface this with this monster was not my idea. It was Steve's idea. Sure was. But it's fitting. We're doing the Griffin. Nice. Yep. I thought that was so clever. <laughs> so yeah, this segment was just uh, an idea I had. I, I really like the idea of getting some of the inspirations and historical themes of of the monsters that Paizo creates, uh, getting them out there and talking about them. The Griffin's a real easy first step because it's well known outside of Pathfinder lore, uh, but it is a really fun monster to use in Pathfinder. And I have a little special treat for this one because this came to me early. I have the second edition bestiary. Hell yeah. And guess what's in there? The Griffin's in there. So let me give you a little blurb on the Pathfinder Griffin in the Age of Lost Omens setting. Griffins are regal beasts revered as symbols of freedom and strength in many cultures. They are physically striking with the hindquarters of a lion and the head, wings, and forelimbs of a great bird of prey, typically an eagle, but in some cases, they bear the features of a hawk, falcon, or even osprey or vulture. In rare cases, the griffin's hindquarters may resemble those of a different great cat, such as a leopard or tiger. That's pretty dope. The variations seem to conform to the environment in which the griffin lives. There's also wingless griffins. Those are known as alces, and they result from a rare mutation. They're usually known as the runt of the litter. Wild griffins rely on their powerful wings to hold them aloft and their keen eyesight to spy out prey. The speed with which they plunge towards the ground and grab their victims is shocking. They may tear open 
victims' flesh with their razor-sharp beaks, but usually they just take their prey to a high, secluded location where they can enjoy their feast without interruptions. On the ground, they take cover and leap out to ambush prey, then fly off with their prize. The exception to this is when a griffin is hunting to feed its offspring, in which case it will almost never purposely bring a living creature back to its nest for fear of endangering its chicks. Skilled animal trainers long ago learned how to raise griffins as mounts for military forces or powerful individuals. Such mounts are known for their strength, bravery, and unfailing loyalty. They are among the smartest of animals and possess a wisdom not normally afforded most animals. It is thought that a griffin chooses its rider as much as a rider chooses the griffin. The process of training a griffin to accept and carry a rider in flight is a long and expensive ordeal. Griffin trainers charge rich sums for their services and a ruler who can boast of owning a stable of griffins is a subject of great respect and envy. And that is what Paizo has to say on the subject in 2E. But there's also a really interesting blurb on the first griffins. So the first griffins in Pathfinder were the combination of two symbolic and recognizable predators of land and air, the lion and the eagle. It's the result of devout prayer among ancient cultures to an equally ancient deity, a now long dead god named Kerchanus, I believe, <laughs> uh, who once held domain over the beasts of the world. That god was killed by Lamashtu. Oh, and wow. it is said that when Lamashtu killed that god, the griffins lost their great intellect. Hmm. Now, they are still more intelligent than mere beasts, but can no longer speak. They can understand um, common, generally. So they can understand language, and that makes them valuable mounts because they can learn pretty much any trick, any animal companion trick is easy for them uh, because they understand what you're trying to tell them to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I love how it ties into the griffin's wings being almost angelically depicted a lot of the time. Yeah. They're like mm -hmm. white, beautiful wings, and there's a certain divinity to them, even though they are just you know, neutral, uh, magical beasts it still has that aspect. That's cool. I think it would be very easy for Paizo just to say these fantasy creatures exist in our world. Yeah. But we've got how they may have came to be and, uh, the cool divine tie-ins, the, the instances of prayer and stuff. It's cool as hell. Yeah, for sure. So that's the second edition, um, rendition. So those of you, I think when this releases, 2E should be out. Highly recommend checking it out because oh, it's, it's super cool. I, I'm very blessed to have subscribed and gotten the books early on my doorstep because I'm loving all the juicy details I'm picking out of there. It was also fun to hop on uh, PFSRD and just read about the creature. There is a lot mm -hmm. on griffins. Um, I, I, I enjoyed reading that um, because they have just slightly higher intelligence than most regular beasts um, the gods actually see the domestication of a griffin that's unwilling to be a form of slavery so yeah that was super interesting like good aligned gods don't agree with unless unless you have like a willing mm -hmm. griffin they don't agree with forcing them into service yeah then I I, I, I was reading as well that um uh, uh, 
an interesting thing about griffins is that they team they tend to have a bunch of treasure but not in the way that like a dragon has treasure right where it you know it's this kind of miserly i have all the gold kind of thing um they just hunt people because people ride horses and they like eating horses and when they kill people and horses there's a bunch of like adventuring shit left over and it just kind of like piles up in their cave so when you're in game and you find a griffin nest you should also find like a pretty substantial amount of treasure just because other people that found that griffin unwillingly or willingly left it all there there's a very interesting tidbit uh, that i believe paizo put out there for a first edition griffin where to your point they have a ton of treasure Mm mm-hmm and they're intelligent enough to want to avoid confrontations with humanoids when they can, when they're not hunting horse meat. So around their nest or their lair, they actually leave magical items. Magical Uh-oh, items and items those. of great value, they leave in like a perimeter as a warning. And and I think the warning being like, I could kill somebody with this plus one longsword, like, who are you? Hmm. But... Give me rogues. a horse. Yeah, rogues and that kind of thing. Uh, people, people with a knowledge of Griffin and Griffins and Pathfinder know that the the nest will generally hold the best treasure. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think the the central theme of treasure and protecting gold and stuff does tie in well to the historical background of a Griffin. Yeah, do you guys <laughs> want to dive into that? Yeah, let's I think do it. Should. And since you, you you're the one who's doing it, let's hear it, Tim. Yeah, well, I know that um, the griffin dates back as one of the oldest uh, creatures probably in recorded history. I would imagine it dates back to 4000 BC in some central uh, region of... uh, Where do we start this? I think it was in Sumeria or in the Middle East. It was a different... It was Susa was the city name. Okay. I I have here written down in my notes that griffin-like appearances have been seen in monsters from ancient Egypt, um, ancient Iran, Sumeria, Akkadian, um, or I guess it's Akkadia, uh, Hindu and Jewish cultures. So I almost, I, I almost wonder if it's kind of like, like dragons or the pyramids that everyone around the world is kind of thinking about the same things at the same times. Yeah, it could be. I think that the, the idea probably spread, though, from the Middle East, like a lot of mm-hmm. these ideas where it, it kind of radiated outwards. And then as people started trading across, you know, the Silk Road, that's where the movement of all the symbology probably happened, I, I would imagine. And we get the modern idea of the griffin from the Greeks. And then also, you know, in transition, that was the medieval idea of the griffin. They, yeah. they got yeah. that from the Greeks. So... Yeah, that's kind of how it happened. Now, there's a theory out there on the origin of the griffin that seems to be a little contentious. Um, do either of you want to want to bring me up to speed on this theory? I think you know what I'm talking about. Well, I can talk about what the theory is, and then, Tim, if you want to present the argument against it. Sure. So, there's a theory, uh, and Adrian Mayer is kind of the big proponent of this theory. And the theory is that the griffin of classical Greek literature and art was influenced by observations and accounts brought back to the Mediterranean region by traders and travelers along the Silk Road. So kind of to your point. Um, 
And the reason that she thought these ideas were being brought by the Silk Road is because fossils of a protoceratops or several protoceratops, uh, which were beaked dinosaurs, they, um, they kind of were found supposedly in the area and that was supposed to have given folks the idea that a creature such as this might exist because the skeletons were large and beaked and kind of resembled something like a not quite a lion but a large creature with a beak and that kind of evolved into the idea that okay well we see lions in this area we know like lions are the only thing that's roughly this size but this has a beak and this has huge wings. Yeah, and the location of these fossils was the the deserts in sort of this central uh, eastern part or western part of Asia. And so I, I love the tie-in here to the, the modern idea that the griffins are guarding gold because they were... They, they proposed some ideas that, oh, these fossils were found near areas where there were scatterings of gold mines and stuff that was then traded oh, across the Silk Road. That's so, so cool. Maybe they were guarding it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, the the counter argument, I guess, to that was just through reading online. I'm not an archaeologist or paleontologist. None of us are. Yeah, none of us are. are yeah. Like, are, are, should be talking about these things definitely it's i mean i should be i guess i should be a griffin expert at some point <laughs> yeah i'm surprised you didn't know any of these things beforehand i knew a lot of just the the history of you know what a griffin is and what a griffin does i didn't really know like the archaeological stuff yeah. behind it or really the the past traditions or yeah. the past tellings and how it spread but i think it i mean it's super interesting that something from dating back to 4000 BC would become such a predominant figure in heraldry and all of that stuff as well in the Renaissance. Oh yeah. Tim, do you want to do me a favor and and tell us why Griffin's theory is bullshit? Should I get really angry about it? (laughs) Call Adrian Mayer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, don't add us. I think, I think this idea of a, you know, dinosaur bones being interpreted as a mythical monster is not anything new. You, You hear about this with dragons and stuff as well the one thing is that the timing of it we talked about 4000 bc being this earliest record of something that was probably a griffin in in the city of susa which is extremely ancient and it's in it's in modern day iran the uh the silk road stuff was out by the gobi desert and where those fossils are found of the the i don't know if we mentioned it's called the protoceratops is the the, it kind of looks like a triceratops to me I recognize from like the, the land, the land before time, land before time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so it kind of ignores the placement in time and the placement in location that line up with the earliest images of the Griffin. Now, I do think that like you could definitely see the idea being perpetuated because it's kind of a confirmation bias thing. You look at the fossil and you're like, oh, has a beak. Uh, these frills, they kind of look like ears. Maybe they're the ears and it's a quadruped. So maybe that's like a lion. You know, you can see people interpreting it that way or just getting the fossils wrong and being confused and has wings and whatever. But um, it's probably not the earliest idea of a griffin. I think mo- the main takeaway from these these types of creatures is that you have humans that have an imagination 
and mm-hmm. here is a, a majestic bird and a majestic beast and we put them together and chimeras are very common so it's not hard to imagine that they would have just made this up or brought this in as a possibility um, because of what it represents it represents power and all-seeing vision of the hawk and the fierceness of a lion in one divine creature well, I think what you're forgetting here is the predominant theory, Tim, which is ancient aliens. Aliens. <laughs> I did forget that. Yeah, that's not in my notes, but I definitely <laughs> wanted to talk about that. Ancient aliens. <laughs> yeah. Could always be explained by that. How did we get the pyramids anyways? A bunch of griffins built them, but they're from... The griffins. They're from space. Yes. The last griffin was the sphinx, and it became stone. Well, it was a griffin with a broken beak. Yeah. Well, that that brings up an actually an interesting point, too, because there are variations of griffins where some of them apparently even have like a human face. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're super weird. Some of a them are of, much closer to what a sphinx like traditionally yeah. looks like. Yeah, definitely. And sphinxes, yeah, like half lion, half human, right? And yes. sph- sphinxes are sometimes depicted as having wings as well. Oh, okay. So they're pretty close. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Where do you draw the line? When does it stop being a griffin with a human face and a sphinx with eagle talons? <laughs> I don't know. This is what I need the historians to answer. All right. All right, Twitter. That's your call to arms. Call to uh, arms. Hashtag griffin line. Tell us where you draw the line. <laughs> draw the line. That's where you- Magic. All right. Um, th- that was fun talking about where they came from in actual mythology. I also want to talk about... Um, mechanically how we use this in Pathfinder. However, I want to hit some fun facts about griffins first. Alright. Alright. Cool. I've only got a few of these. So, Godric Gryffindor's surname is a variation of the French Griffin Dwar. I think that sounds French. Yeah. That and that, tr- that translates to Golden Griffin. I never knew that. I thought it was just oh. a play on uh, the word Griffin, because Griffins are like majestic and royal and stuff. That's cool. Yeah, that's why my parents made my middle name Dwar. <laughs> I never knew that about you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, some traits that are associated with Griffin. Um, oh, I'm sorry. The Griffin, not this actual. Not to be mistaken. Not to be mistaken with Griffin in the room here. Uh, courage, boldness, strength, military courage, more specifically, leadership and intelligence. Let's say we got like two or three of those in you, so that's not bad. Got him. Yes. Yeah. Let's say which ones. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely military courage. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe there was one, that'd be it. I think so. I I agree. Um the oldest Bronze Age, uh a statue of Islamic origin, it's the largest one, uh, is the Pisa Griffin. It's like three feet tall, but it's a griffin. That's kinda cool. Oh. Yeah. It's not to be confused with the Leaning Tower of Pisa, is that? Well, that's no. why it leaned. The statue came to life and knocked over the tower. Uh-huh. Well, no, I think you guys are both wrong here. The there are there are four of these statues, each under the Leaning Tower of Pisa. They removed one, idiots, to display it, and now it's leaning because now there's only three left. Ah, yeah, I knew that had Islamic origins. That's why one of their <laughs> one of their traits is strength. They were holding up the. The Tower of Pisa until recent ah, times really brings a new perspective. Yeah. Learning a lot. This is this has been an enlightening segment. 
ancient aliens, tilting towers. Where will we go next? It's this 12% beer. It's really doing me. It's hard to, I mean, stay, hard to stay by the books when you're drinking 12% beer. Yeah, I'm going to kill this and open up a can of hams. All right. There we go. Let's talk about how you guys would use this Wait, monster in Pathfinder. What? You're missing your favorite fact. Oh, that's correct. Um, in Heroes of Might and Magic 3, the griffin is a third level creature in the castle town. Um, upgraded, they turn to the royal griffin and have unlimited counterattacks. Well, what about their mating practices? I was going to say that. That's what I was going for. Oh my god, that was my favorite fact. Yeah. Yes. All right. I can't believe I skipped over that one. Um, for Heroes of Might and Magic. Listen, here's you know a, where his priorities lie. <laughs> Heroes of Might and Magic is the video game I've been playing the longest. It's incredible. It is good. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm just going to read this one straight from my notes because I think it deserves every bit of respect. In medieval legend, griffins not only mated for life, but if either partner died, then the other would continue the rest of its or the rest of its life alone, never to search for a new mate. The griffin was thus made an emblem of the church's opposition to remarriage. Wow. That's actually interesting because that's a trait that transcends, uh, like it's in it's in the Paizo splat material mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. that they are fiercely you know, loyal to their mate and they do this whole crazy mating ritual and yes, they mate for life. So when they're separated, it's separation is also seen as a you know sin by the gods if you're forcing one of the mates apart because it is known that they, they never mate with another and they basically spend they have this like obsession with finding their mate again so when you encounter a griffin in the pathfinder setting do you usually typically uh, find two of them at a time I it depends so. it um, a domesticated griffin forms not a mating bond but mm-hmm. a a bond with its rider yep. so those griffins typically don't mate either yeah. Because they uh, they form this, but they basically form this level of respect that bonds them to a person, and they become as fiercely loyal as they would towards a mate towards that person. Hmm. Well, I guess Haley never has to worry about uh, uh, about if she dies, you finding somebody else. Made it for life. Made it for life. That's right. There's a getting mated to your rider joke in there, but I'm going to move right past it and go straight into mechanical uses. Okay. Okay. So do we, do we want to talk stat block first or sure? Why not? Probably, it seems like a good starting point. We probably should. So, um, why don't I say the two E stat block since I have it in front of me. And then if one of you has the first edition stat block, maybe we can take a look at that. So I'm going to go into the 2E stat block. I don't think the creatures are overly different, but obviously with the rule set changing, there's a little bit that changes with them. I, I think as a as a baseline here, your stand, let's just clear up. In both uh, Pathfinder 1E and 2E, the, the standard run-of-the-mill griffin is a CR4 creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not overly difficult. Mm-hmm. Let's hear about them. Okay. So like Steve said... It's a creature four, actually, in the uh, in the two E rule book, Steve. So, <laughs> sorry, it, it'd be interesting. I mean, you should probably just pick one up, but whatever. <clears throat> it's just confusing. I'm not buying two E. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is confusing me. Why does it have CR in front of it? <laughs> uh, so it has plus eleven 
perception and dark vision, imprecise scent, which is a thing in Tui that is markedly different. Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes out, all of those senses go out to 60 feet. It's got acrobatics plus 11, athletics plus 12, and survival plus 9. And uh, this is actually kind of, it's a cool change with the 2e bestiary is that they just give you the bonuses to the stats. So uh, it is plus four strength, plus three dex, plus three con, minus four intelligence, plus one wisdom, and minus one charisma. Which would net out to roughly an 18, 16, 16. Is that three or four out of my, or three or two out of minus four? Um... I think one's minus five. Yeah. So it's like two or three. Yeah. Uh, And then it's got an AC of 21, a fortitude save plus 13, reflex plus 13, will plus seven, 60 health, uh, 25 foot land speed, and 60 foot fly speed. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't give a maneuverability like like is normal in a 1E stat block. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. So does that mean it just has, like, perfect fly? I don't know. I'd have to dig a little deeper to see how a fly works. Um, But we're looking at three separate types of melee attack. It's got a beak plus 14, which has the deadly property and is 1d10 of damage. Or the deadly is 1d10, and the damage is 2d8 plus 4 piercing. The talon is... The talons are plus 14. They're both agile weapons, so you get, if you want to attack with them after your beak, you get a lesser penalty. I believe it's minus 4 instead of minus 5. And they each deal 2d6 plus 4 piercing damage. And then you have its wings, which are plus 14, have the reach property, which is cool, 10 feet of reach, and they do 2d6 plus 4 bludgeoning. Plus 14? Plus four. Well, it's plus fourteen to hit. Wow. Okay. That's markedly higher than Pathfinder One. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know. It might be just be different based off of uh, yeah. the new edition. I'm not. Yeah. Using, so. I'm, I'm sure for it to be a CR four. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Um, it has flying strafe. The Griffin flies up to its fly speed and makes two talent strikes at any point during that movement. Each strike must target a different creature. The attacks take the normal multiple attack penalty. So this is kind of like a flyby attack in first edition, it sounds yeah. like. And then it has pounce, but pounce sounds a little different in 2e than it did in 1e. The griffin strides and makes a talon strike at the end of its movement. If the griffin began its action hidden, it remains hidden until after the attack. So this is kind of like, it sounds like pounce is more of a like surprise mm-hmm. attack than anything. Yeah, which is way different than, I think, the Pathfinder First Edition pounce, which is you move and then you make a full attack after a charge or something. Yeah, the 1E pounce is super powerful. Very can't, powerful. can't wait till Saw gets it. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. Pounce and rake. Yep. Perfect tie-in to what the Griffin has, which is pounce and rake. Tell me about it, Tim. They get also the beak attack, which is just bite. And then uh, Talon attacks the two claws. Mm-hmm. But you can pounce and do all three of those. And if you hit, I think Rake is with both Talons or both, something? Both both of your secondaries, yep. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you get the extra Rake damage, um, which can be really nasty because you're probably fighting this thing on its own and you're probably like a level two or three party. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that can outright kill you. I mean, we yeah. saw that happen with Lyra a couple episodes ago. When you get the rake off, it's brutal. Yeah, definitely. It's just free damage. I like the addition of uh, the flyby attack in 2E because I feel like that's how it, I, I would imagine a griffin would attack. Yeah. Just dive bombing and stuff like that. And this this makes me think of the Manicore fight, right? If oh, yeah. you have a party that's not outfitted for for ranged, you're screwed. Oh, well, yeah, a flyby attack, he just he just keeps swinging back and forth. Yep. Knocking you down each time. Yeah. Don't piss off a griffin. I think that's I've the first learned rule. that. <laughs> yeah. Everybody uh, in this room knew it. Yeah. It's interesting that they dropped the intelligence down a little bit because they have an intelligence of five in first edition. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that reflects more of what we were discussing before and how It'd be intelligent still they are. Intelligent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're using that, like the death of uh, Chanis or however yeah. you say it, um, as kind of the rationale behind its low intelligence. Granted, it in first edition, I know you can it understands speech; it just can't mm-hmm. speak. Yeah, I think three or so is the cutoff on intelligence score. Yep, yep. But um, they keep all the core stuff the same. They have the super fast flight and they have, you know, the same attacks and, and sort of the same style. Do they have wing attacks in 1E? Oh, you're right. They don't have wing attacks. So that's interesting. Yeah, never thought about that. Hmm. Hey, if you're if you got a griffin animal companion, give it the powerful wings feet. Yeah. Hmm. And then there's um, a couple variants of the griffin as well. One is the mythic variant that they feature in Mythic Adventures. It has, I think it's CR5 and has two mythic ranks, and it can dive bomb somebody, which means that with a 100 foot fly speed, it can make four, it can charge with four times its movement and then attack at the end of it, which I imagine you can also pounce with. So you can be 400 feet away and just attack a PC out of nowhere. That's like if I was standing on the end of a city block yeah. and in six seconds a griffin just like sped like a bullet and just tackled into me okay brutal <laughs> so cool though uh they get you know dr and stuff like that too yeah but the dive bomb where it's at yeah mythic griffin's pretty dope so why don't we talk about how we'd run these um i had a couple of ideas i think a griffin is the perfect CR at a CR four for any of the pet classes, really maybe aside from Ranger because they're delayed in their yeah. progression uh, to take on when they're eligible for the monstrous mount feat at level four. So at level four, you could be like a, a cavalier or even a druid or something. Somebody that wants a mount wants their animal companion to be a mount. You can take monstrous mount and you get the kind of a list of magical beasts that you can have. For me, running that, I, I'd create a side quest for the party cavalier um, to tame a griffin, earn its respect, uh, that kind of thing. If as long as they're you know a good aligned or even a neutral aligned character, you'd think you wouldn't really want to uh, enslave a griffin unless you're an evil person. But I think that'd be really fun. I think that'd be a fun side quest to run. Whether it be uh, the the trials of trying to tame an adult griffin, which is very difficult, or trying to get into a griffin's nest and, and either take an egg or take one of the young, 
uh, to raise because I think it's actually written by Paizo that the the young griffins are much easier to train mm-hmm. because they grow up with you. Sure. Um, which would which would definitely be a cool concept to run in a campaign too. Uh, we we talked about how they scatter those magic items around their territory, and I think that could also be a really cool in to like a little side adventure where if the party is specifically low on their wealth by level, so in in certain APs that happens, you could throw that in relatively easily and it's a way where if the party doesn't want to investigate it, you don't have to railroad them, but you could give them a couple of magical items because of the Griffin's trait for kind of scattering those around and that wouldn't put them at much danger, but if they wanted the better stuff, they could actually go to its lair. I think that would I think that would play well into a lot of APs. I mean, immediately that comes into mind is um, Iron Fang Invasion, where oh, yeah. where you yeah. get driven out of town, and it's not like you can go buy things. So throw a Griffin Cave in there if your party's under leveled, and yeah, your folks get some stuff, and if they really want to challenge the CR four Griffin and get some cool shit, they could do that. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, it's really nice, especially for something like that where you're not you're not able to go shopping. Yep. Because as a GM, you can kind of tailor the magic items that they might find because it's you know it's not part of the AP as written. You can make some cool stuff, some interesting stuff, maybe some stuff that they wouldn't find in the normal AP, and some stuff that you know without overpowering them might be something cool that they couldn't afford at a lower level. Yeah, and it fits really nicely into the exploration and wilderness stuff that happens in between major events and a lot of APs. So it fits perfectly into that. It feels a lot like something you would roll on a random encounter table. Yeah. In in, in like a book two or something where you're uh, traveling between like a one big set piece to the next or in between books. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great uh, book one to two. I think yeah. it's the perfect spot. That's the perfect spot for that is between books one and two and a lot of APs you hit like level four ish by the end of the first book. And so a Griffin and its mate might be a relatively challenging encounter. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the last thing I want to say about using it is that they are low CR, but they have a lot of cool tactics and they have a lot of cools like pounce and stuff is very powerful for a CR creature or CR four creature. And what I would do here is, especially if you're kind of matching the CR of your party with a griffin, I would change up the terrain. A lot like we did in the Manticore fight. Yes. I would have the party only encounter the griffin when they're climbing up the the peak to get to its nest or something, where it has the advantage. And so even if your party's all level four, a CR4 griffin is going to present a substantial challenge when everybody's using their climb and there's risk of falling and it can kind of harry the party as they're on their way to its nest. I think stuff like that is a really cool way to make this encounter more difficult without adding something like the advanced template to it or using the mythic griffin or something. Or what you what you could do is yeah, a situation like that um or, or change up the composition using the uh, the like canonical Pathfinder uh, explanation behind these characters or the, the these creatures. So have that you know CR four Griffin, but then have like two or three more of them with the young template on there. Like the mom's teaching them how to hunt, 
Yeah, that'd be super cool. Uh, I think if you're going to give like your Cavalier a Griffin and they uh-huh. take Monstrous Mountain stuff, talk to them because they're... Did, did Haley take the Monstrous Mount feat? She did not. All right. Uh, but, but talk to them because I think the way Paizo has set Griffins up allows them to be very customizable. Uh, I'll give an example, like something like a Griffin you might find in Irisin might actually be like snow leopard body and snowy owl front. Oh, that's and cool. And you, you can do cool stuff like that that either ties into your setting or you can have a random chance. Like you can allow the player to kind of customize what their new mount looks like. And I think that makes them much more attached to it. I didn't know most of these things going in. Um, I honestly selected the Griffin because of the bit of it's the first time we're doing this segment and we have a person named Griffin, but I kind of fell in love with this creature. There's so much you can do with it. It's a low CR, but you can have a lot of really fun, cool encounters and there's so much cool, fun story behind it. Paizo put a lot of thought into it. There's a lot of historical context for this creature. I think it's cool as hell. Yeah, it's not a vanilla CR4 creature at all. I, I came into it as well thinking, uh, this is kind of, you know, it's pretty pretty basic. It's yeah. it's in every single fantasy setting ever, but it, it is really cool. The last thing I did want to say about the griffin, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating, is that it has the lower half of a lion or yep. big cat, but it lays eggs. I didn't think of that. You're right. So it, it must have like an internal bird-like... Uh, anatomy, which means that its reproductive organs and its digestive system are the same same whole. Just food for thought. Even though it's any, a lion body. Any more thoughts on that? No, so you're just, saying uh, a, a griffin has a what's that called? A cloaca? cloaca. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Even though it's a lion body. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I think we should end every My Favorite Monster segment talking about the reproductive structure of well, I mean, the general biology. <laughs> yeah, you can't really like feed like a mammal if you have a beak. So it makes sense they lay eggs. So... As a baby. Do they make milk? No, right? You don't think, because yeah, they, I guess not. It seems like they're mostly bird, honestly. Griffins wouldn't have nipples. No, they wouldn't. No nipples. Uh, or if we're talking strictly lower body, I mean, they might have like two of the six or four of the six. Oh, that's fair. But imagine like, you know, you, you don't really suckle with a beak. Yeah, that's that's kind of, yeah, that's my thoughts on the matter. So like vestigial nipples. Okay. All right, I like that. Canon. <laughs> Hashtag vestigial nipples. Um, You're welcome. So this segment fell the fuck apart. <laughs> so, but but that's been my favorite monster, and you know, you folks that listen, we love feedbacks on segments like this. I mean, I think this is a part of the zone of truth. Obviously, we can kind of wax on it for twenty twenty five minutes, oh, yeah. but uh, this is definitely a topic that you could talk about for a long time. If you guys really like something like this, like we're happy to do this kind of content as well. So just let us know. Yeah, we are in the zone of truth, so I don't want anybody lying to us. If this isn't fun to listen to, just say so. Yeah, let us know. That's cool. I understand. We're testing things out. But I also know that there are some answers that need to be given for some questions that have been asked. We're moving on to the question segment. We have a drop for this, too? Yeah. uh, I've got some questions for you. 
Answer them, you piece of poo. Vestigial nipples. Vestigial nipples. All right, our first question comes from Sir Brainy. And I actually think this is very apropos for the segment that we just had. Is there a reason for the lack of companion classes Pathfinder is infamous for in the party? Because I think traditionally, Carrying Crown is one of the few APs where you can effectively play a Cavalier or Hunter or similar. I have some thoughts on this. Yeah, go ahead. You're a player. Yeah. So, uh, companions aren't unfamiliar to us as players. I think uh, Emily's very first Pathfinder character was a druid, and she played this character maybe through 10-ish levels before she died, and had an animal companion the entire time. We we know how they work. But, but off the rip, one, we just fell in love with the character concepts we have, so... So that explains that. However, um, you know, it's not our first time playing, but it is our first time on a podcast. So I think when you inject much, this, you know, some of those more difficult to, to manage, especially, you know, in combat aspects of the companion classes, you know, I, I think we wanted to get our feet under us before we, we, we tried something like that. I think that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. I, I was going to go the, you know, you guys just really enjoyed your character concepts level, but, but yeah, I think, you know, managing multiple things certainly does bog down combat in some ways, especially, I mean, not everyone at the table has played a companion class, mm-hmm. although Emily has. So to bring that level of newness into something, maybe, maybe backup characters, but I think we just wanted to get our feet under us podcasting before something like that was brought in and, and people were able to find non-companion class characters that they absolutely adored. So I will say this is a little bit of tease, but I chatted with Griffin about a potential backup character for the evil interlude for, for saw. And it is a companion class. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but Griffin liked it. Sam, what do you think about companion classes? Yeah. Have you ever played one? Uh, I have, I have a ranger right now that has a slug animal companion. Oh, and no, I, 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 you know, I agree with everything you were saying. I think it, it makes sense. Sometimes you just have the idea in your head for a character and it doesn't have a companion because you're not playing that class. But the uh, the companion, honestly, like I end up forgetting about it a lot. It It's supposed to have its own like personality and character. And so it is like you're kind of splitting your time role playing. There's a lot of nitty gritty rules associated with teaching them tricks. A little easier if you have a slug because they're mindless. So they learn two tricks and that's it. That's all you get. <laughs> that's all you got. That's all she wrote. Um, yeah, uh, but it's it is a fun it is a fun idea and yeah, I'm sure you guys wouldn't be close to the idea of having a companion class. the The one Emily played was was pretty fun because she named the the animal after uh, Beaker, which is their dog, Brooks and Emily's dog. It was a dire wolf, correct? It was a dire wolf, and then it died, and then it got reincarnated because she was a druid and she had that spell, and we rolled on the table, tons of cool options. Beaker came back as a horse. Beaker, (laughs) the most ridiculous, like, super energetic dog ever, was a large horse, and it was great. It was so fun. I actually played uh, our society scenario at Origins with, it was like, Everyone at the table but one was playing the Iconics, mm-hmm. and this guy rolls to the table with 
a Zen archer monk that somehow had gotten, I, I don't know if he dipped or what he did, but he had gotten a horse animal, animal companion, but it had these, these horseshoes that made it a nightmare for a certain oh, amount wow. of time per day. And he was just fucking lighting shit up. Like Zen archer monk mounted was insane. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, he's like fucking flurrying on the back of this thing and he never has to move. And when it turns into a nightmare, it's got ridiculous, like perfect fly speed. So it's just like up in the air and he's volleying arrows and we're all dying because we're the Iconics. And this was like a level eight adventure. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. Animal companions can be super strong and on their own. And it it's uh, something that like, even if you take the wolf and you invest a few feet into it, suddenly you've got something that, you know, it adds a token to the character, to the, to the table, sets up flanking. It can trip. It has super fast speed. It can disrupt casters. Amazing classes. Well, it just adds the action economy. Yeah. Yeah. We we played a, a scenario, Jesus, maybe uh, two, three, four months ago um, that our buddy Chris ran. And I played a character who uh, he was a ranger. Obviously, I took Boon Companion. Uh, the, the specific archetype was like Divine Archer or something where you get crazy bonuses to shooting a bow. And my animal companion was a constrictor snake. So he got close, grappled somebody, knocking down the AC, doing automatic constrict damage, and then I just pumped arrows into him. Oh, it, that's amazing. It felt broke as hell. It was <laughs> so fun. Yeah, and then cool. Haley was like the fucking shifter, and she was a giant frog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chris, It was the first time Chris ever GM'd. He was so excited. Yeah. And we just came in with these broke-ass characters. <laughs> That's the most fun about one shots. You just do really stupid, like, or you uh, you end up with Garrity O'Leary because he was a one shot character. Oh, really? That I played. Oh, that's right. And then you can reuse him later. Yeah, yeah. And just wait till Tim one shots him in a in a couple weeks. <laughs> well, if I keep rolling like three on my health, then yeah. <laughs> First time I get the chance to disintegrate. Can't wait. <laughs> All right, our next question comes from longtime listener of the show, big fan of ours, and we're a big fan of him, Rusted Chrome. I'd like to know what enemy slash monster would the Zone of Truth group dread most to fight against, and if they were the GM, what monster would they love to unleash on a party? Just straight off the rip. Uh, I, I, again, this this feels like a non-answer, but it depends on your party composition. Oh, yeah. like well, I think he's asking about your current party composition. Ooh, our current party composition? Shit. Uh... Uh, incorporeal undead. Really? Because I feel like you guys. <laughs> so this this is my take on that. I think I think something like a dragon is you guys are super unoptimized for, and you guys have terrible range. Anything and I think range, it would yeah. I think it would just light you guys up. I feel like if I threw a dragon at you guys, especially in this undead heavy campaign, TPK. Even like a young dragon, when you guys are appropriate level for that, would would just rain down terror on you. Yeah, I think I think we did well enough in the Manicore fight, but Manicore fight later in the day after we've had a couple encounters to knock down our spell lists and uh in, in you know our our options would be very difficult. Anything with range, I mean for for our current party is is a problem. We know it's a hole. Yeah, not all dragons are inherently evil, so... Hashtag not all dragons. <laughs> Emily's bread and butter uh, spell right now mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily affect every dragon. Now, of course, there are a lot of dragons that are evil. All of the chromatic dragons are 
canonically evil, but all of the metallic dragons are not. Tim? I would love to throw, um, at this level, I think the oozes can be really fun. Um, it, it, it can be kind of nasty sometimes. Sometimes they have, like, the ability to paralyze or destroy equipment, which is not really fun for a lot of parties. But um, I think where your party's at, like, it might be fun to, to throw that in there, take people out of the combat. It's a, it's a different style of fight because it's like a big HP pool and it's like how much damage you can do in a certain amount of time. So I, I don't know. I think I think that would be fun at this level, but um, that's my two cents. Yeah, at this level, I would never throw a dragon at you. <laughs> I'm just looking to the future and you guys still have that giant gap, which is your range DPS. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and back, to the, back to the ooze thing. Every time I fight an ooze, it's like, Oh man, I can hit every time. But you're right; some of them have wacky abilities that you're that you don't really think about or aren't expecting, and you got to do massive amounts of damage. And oh yeah, I think our party isn't bad at putting out large amounts of damage, but it's not one of our strengths. Yeah, and if you engulf one or two characters with the ooze, you might be in dire straits. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Got some more questions for you guys. This one comes from longtime listener and uh, longtime fan. We're a longtime fan of his too. Liquidarity. Oh yeah. Are there any mechanics from other RPGs that you wish were in Pathfinder? Um, and then he throws out that mine would be weapon crit specializations from the two E playtest. Uh, right off the rip here, there's a lot of changes in two E, and I think. A good amount of them are for the better. Okay. Now, I, I'm not an expert on 2E yet. I don't have my own core rulebook. I didn't play the playtest, but I know a little about it. Um, I think simplifying the action economy is very smart. I think we've talked about it before on this podcast. I'm a huge fan of that. Mm-hmm. I'm also a huge fan of something the Wheeler Woe guys talked about when we had them on was your spell DC. Having like a static spell DC that grows as you grow and keeps your first, second, third level spells relevant. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I, I am a huge fan of that and wish that was in 1E. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, that's why they made a second edition. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things from 2E that are fantastic, would be good additions to 1E. Um, I wanted to add, uh, I was thinking about some, some more... I guess different style of RPGs. There was one I played called Blades in the Dark. It's sort of a like subterfuge and like black, uh, like underworld life type of fantasy setting where you're like a crew and you're you're a bunch of criminals really. And when you level up, you get to level up your crew and level up their specialization. You get to pick special abilities that apply to that. I think. Paizo has explored this idea like in Hell's Rebels where you level up your um, your rebellion group or whatever it's called and there's been several APs that have these extra mechanics I think it's kind of nice to have like a, a character sheet that you can you can pick some abilities off of that are directly relevant to your campaign and I think when I think about Carrying Crown you've been fighting a lot of undead and you might be like well as a group we've gotten better together at fighting undead. And so I'm going to pick this feat that allows everyone to roll knowledge, religion, untrained or something like that, where it's like Hmm. extra little bonuses that, that have a story element to them that adds to the cohesiveness of your party. So you're not relying on, um, you know, one or two members to specialize 
in that one thing because you've all gotten better at it. It doesn't make sense for Ikmer at this point to still not know anything, even though oh, he's yet, yet a lot. Brooks continues to try and use antagonize against them. <laughs> 50 yeah. episodes in, folks. I think, I think Ikmer's in. learned more, but Brooks has not. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so Love it, you, Brooks. It reflects that where, like, the character that you would never take this option because it you feel like you need to continue down your personal specialization is a little more generalized. You can cover each other's bases more often because as a group, you've been living and working together for weeks if not months so I think the crew character sheet I would love to see that nice I have one and it's near and dear to everyone at this table at this point everybody we're talking with right now because I've run you guys through a couple little sessions of kids on bikes how did I know you were going to talk about kids kids on bikes bikes. kids on bikes it's fun it's really fun and one thing that I would take from that and I think wouldn't be hard to take from that and apply it to your session zero or your session one is the fact that that game and and some games like it, some of the like apocalypse world type stuff, the fate system I believe even has this, is that you guys are creating a shared narrative and you're creating links between each other's characters. And the cool thing about Kids on Bikes is that at the beginning of a session, it if it's a new session and it's new characters, it has everybody ask an answer or I ask a question and they answer that question about one of the other players and what they say is canon and so you go around the table and it's like well how does your character know this person either they know them or they don't and that'll open up a different list of questions and if they do know them then it's well does your character feel generally more positive or negative towards this other character right now and you pick, and that that adds another list of questions. And I think it's really good for fleshing out a group and giving everybody an understanding of what these characters are. And in some ways, it does take a little bit away from your character concept at the beginning. But overall, I think it really enhances the experience. I think it gives everybody like some sort of tie to everybody else. And I've talked about it before, how I like to play... TTRPGs and Pathfinder in particular having a link to another character in some respects so like with Kyron and Marco in our in our Return of the Rune Lords game I really enjoy that and I think it's valuable to have so you're not just four people that meet at a tavern or whatever and decide to go on an adventure I think that plays particularly well with shorter adventures maybe characters that are slightly more disposable I think it'd be a little I, I can see that playing a little strangely for like a, a campaign that you're expecting to take like three years and suddenly like I'm making decisions about Tim's character's backstory or, and he's making character decisions about mine but I also do agree that that injects a, a certain amount of randomness and you know something you don't expect into your own character with the right group that's going to be a lot of fun yeah. We're we're all we're all really good friends here. You know, the the people I play with every week, I'm like best friends with all of them. So I don't have a problem like fucking with them a little bit with their backstory. And if they fuck with me a little bit, that's fine. If I was rolling into like a like a PFS like scenario, like with people I don't know, uh, that could be dicey. Yeah, yeah, definitely not for a scenario like that. Yeah, but, but definitely for well, actually with a PFS, that's actually where I would use it. 
because because <laughs> it's a short story. Well, there's yeah. people that take those characters very seriously, true. and they do true. not want you touching them. Yeah, that's I don't true. think your Zen Archer monk buddy wanted you to fuck with his backstory. I don't know. He, I don't think he had a backstory. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, don't, I think he just came from the void. <laughs> yeah, pulled off well. I mean, I one complaint I've heard about Pathfinder Society is that some people just are there to just grind out you know their get their boons and and do um do what they need to to sort of like get to the story and they just they don't role play a lot i power game it i haven't done it myself yeah just power game it and and i think that would be really good to set up some backstory for how you continue on it could be fun um but yeah i see what you mean about messing with your with your own backstory that you made that's that can be rough for some people. Yeah, you definitely have to tailor yeah. the questions, I think. Like yeah. Something like a kids on bike questions are supposed to be because you're like all living in the same town or yeah. like all know of each other and stuff. But you can definitely like, I think something like a, what are rumors that you've heard about yeah. this person yeah. or something like that, where it's cool. they don't have to be true, but it gives you some context into what the rest of the world thinks of your character. Yeah. Now, when you started talking about kids on bikes, I thought the number one suggestion you were going to bring to the table, because the last uh, kids on bike scenario we played was dads on mowers, <laughs> was that we needed to inject more middle-aged dads into the game and, and talk more about barbecuing and football and, yeah. and you know what our wives are getting up to. Barb. Barb. I think they need to buff the middle-aged template a little bit uh-huh. in first edition. Well, yeah. Then you want to play dads on mowers. <laughs> Those boys are buff. My next character is going to be uh, the gentleman class, and my catchphrase is going to be, he's, he's going to be a middle-aged dad. His catchphrase is going to be, you you want a burger or a dog? <laughs> That'll be good. Uh, the gentleman class, first first ever featured in, a, in an AP. <laughs> Just breaking new grounds. <laughs> All right, guys. Be fun. We got one more question in us, um, and this is the hardest-hitting question of the day. So I, I sent this to you a few days ago, giving you some time to ruminate, um, make your decisions. We're going we're gonna to fight it out on air. This comes from Mr. Hootington. He's been a fan of us for a long time. We've been a fan of his for a long time. Um, and he says, which icy flavor is better, blue raspberry or white cherry? Now, if you need some time to think about this, gentlemen, now is your time. Oh, I thought about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I haven't slept since I've seen this one. Oh, I mean, since I got the question, yeah, I've been so you know I, I study food. That's yeah. that's what I'm studying, going to school for right now. And uh, what I've learned is that context is really big mm-hmm. when it comes to your experience tasting a food. So went to a baseball game, went to a concert. Yep. Uh, went out to a park, sat in a hammock. Okay. All all three times um, drinking ices. Okay. And did you try both flavors? Both flavors. Um, were they one after the other? Did you have something to clean the palate? Uh, you know, standard protocol. You, yeah. you taste it. Um, you think about it. You you know you you get the flavors. Spit it back out happen. like your wine tasting. You could. <laughs> but you know, I was at a baseball park. I, I don't uh-huh. really want to spit on the ground. It's kind of rude. So. Uh, and then, and then you rinse your mouth with water, grab some saltine crackers, uh, and then rinse, you know, it's going to cleanse the palate Yep. and then try the second icy. Okay. It's tough because the blue raspberry stains your mouth so much that I'm not sure 
you know that that's kind of a variable there where uh i don't know if i like that what yeah what, now what did you have a conclusion concert at the concert uh people thought it was spiked but you know i was i was trying it straight yeah um now who'd you see i was double fisting what who'd you see oh um the blue man group who else would you see with, I would, with, with, now I now I would put forward that you might be biased there. Yeah, that's a bias. That's a good point. Uh, it's only been a week. <laughs> I guess you got to take what shows in town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This Blue Man Group's always there. Yep. All right. So uh, we've done some testing. Yep. What's the best flavor? The best flavor at a concert. I felt like it was Blue Raspberry because you're having a great time. Mm-hmm. And uh, people want to see your mouth coated in blue ink. Okay. And blue raspberry is a classic flavor. Did anyone ask you if you sucked off one of the blue men? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> As, uh, I see where the bias is coming in now, because it was a blue man group concert, and people were thinking things, I'm sure. <laughs> you went backstage. Yeah. Lucky. Oh, God. Yeah, so I'd, I'd probably stick with that. <laughs> blue raspberry. Stick with blue raspberry. Uh, speaking of the staining, I think that's where my my interpretation of this went. I think, you know, with the blue raspberry, yeah, it's a great flavor. Don't get me wrong. But that flavor is going to live with you for the rest of the day. People are going to know you just had a blue raspberry icy. For better or worse. Yeah, for better or worse. That's on you. You're marked. But for those of you looking for the conspicuous icy experience that's gonna be white cherry baby you could take that you could take that wherever you want nobody's gonna know oh, what you, you put it in a big gold yeah, nobody knows Don't nobody know. knows it could be anything and they'll never see the traces of it on your lips so you'll never tell yeah i would say the right context um maybe back when i was like in seventh grade lunchtime slam a blue icy for the rest of the day all these other kids were like oh man steve got a blue icy your mom packed it in your lunch the blue icy no never (laughs) but like that would be the context like if i had a blue icy at lunch while i was in grade school like it's a badge of courage it's right an honor i mean that's that's how you get kids talking about you oh yeah yeah people get jealous um but i and, and i do agree with griffin's point that if you know i want to hide the fact that i'm uh you know slamming an icy in a men's room somewhere um away from <laughs> away from the public's prying eyes if i drink a blue icy everyone's gonna know that i was drinking an icy in the men's room um there's something different about you <laughs> I <laughs> your lips blue. i can't put my finger on it coming out of the bathroom at a blue blue man group concert blue lips <laughs> motherfucker <laughs> Now I understand why the ratings were so bad on the last uh, on the last Zone of Truth you on because we just start talking about Griffin Cloaca's vestigial nipples and sucking off a Blue Man Group guy. I didn't bring any of that up. I think you did all three of those. No, he was just talking. He was rolling with the punches there. It wasn't me. In conclusion, at a Blue Man Group concert, grade or in grade school, maybe you're in grade school at a Blue Man Group concert. Oh God! Blue ice is the call. Um, anywhere else, maybe maybe the the white cherry. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. good. That's I like fair. what a comprehensive answer. Both flavors are good. I, I'm I'm more of a blue raspberry taste wise person. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the blue raspberry. Uh, 
what do you guys think mixed with like a vodka? Um, this is probably going to be an unpopular opinion, but you could probably put a, you know, just because there's a stigma associated with it, but you throw some UV blue in there. You're probably having a good time. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Cherry. I think, uh, it reminds me of medicine a lot. A lot of medicines are cherry flavored. Mm -hmm. So I think adding vodka would probably bring out the medicinal aspect. Yeah. That's probably blue raspberry. Blue raspberry for the, uh, for the spikes spike drink. Yeah. Yeah, what would you even put in the? the I mean, I just think you'd put straight vodka and cherry juice. You could actually, I mean, if you didn't care about tainting the snowy white color, mm-hmm. you could probably put cherry coke in it, and it'd be uh, or no. Well, you could like mix. You could like put some cherry coke in it, and then put some rum or even whiskey in there, and it would probably be pretty good. So I think when all things are considered. Clearly, we think way more about these throwaway questions than any other question. <laughs> so keep those coming, because I I enjoyed this. Yep. Good stuff. Got a lot to think about. <laughs> anyway, we are coming up on time. We've answered our questions. We've talked about the Griffin. Everybody knows where we are in day two of the trial. I'd say that's a wrap for this episode of the Zone of Truth. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I talked about a lot. I had a great time. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Super no fun. problem, man. Tim, uh, where can people get a hold of you? You can get a hold of me uh, on uh, Twitter is is the least likely place. <laughs> well, Facebook is yes. probably worse. Yes, let's start with the the way to not get a hold of you. <laughs> I'm I one day I'll get on Twitter. I have a Twitter account it's called Thelonious Monk. That's most of my usernames on most things. It's like the jazz artist Thelonious Monk, but mm. it's shortened just to be TL in the front. And uh, Discord is where I talk the most. So um, hit me up on Discord. It's a really fun place. You guys have talked about it enough on your podcast. Matumbe like, Lover sixty nine. Yeah, Matumbe Lover sixty nine is my tag in that Discord. Uh, I won't be getting rid of that anytime soon. I hope. We'll see. Um, I just want to make a quick plug here. This is dropping after Gen Con, but I really want everybody to tune in to our next Zone of Truth because we haven't recorded it yet. We're going to have a very fun, cool guest on. Ooh. Live from Gen Con. We're going to be... Re- <laughs> that always goes well. Yeah, it always does. Yep. Uh, Those untreated rooms, uh, the untreated uh, alcohol addiction. We're going, yeah, we are going to be recording live from Gen Con in an Airbnb with someone who is very cool that we're very excited about. So tune into episode 14. In the meantime, however, Tim, you have succeeded your will save to resist the Griffin's cloaca. Oh, you mean I had, I could have lied? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's time to wrap things up. Yeah, so. Why don't you guys finish your drinks? Because we'll see you in two weeks. Later. I got a whole margarita.